We certainly, again, are blessed to come to an hour such as this one in which we can give consideration to the greatest and grandest things in all of life. For after all, isn't it true? What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Those words of Mark 8, verses 36 and 37, challenge us to realize that our viewpoint, our perspective must always be guided by those things found as revealed in the Word of God. And we're honored tonight to be able to come together on an occasion such as this one to offer our praise and worship unto God. And as a part of that service, to reflect on a text such as Philippians 4, verse 8. I know that was read a few moments ago in our hearing as Brother Dennis shared that with us. Please be turning to the fourth chapter of Philippians, if you would. And tonight, for our study, we're going to reflect upon elements of godly thinking. Elements of godly thinking. That's the title to our lesson. And the introductory slide to it will look as follows. Isn't it true that we understand quite well there are a host of limitations and a host of weaknesses and inadequacies to you and to me individually? We all understand that, and as we give thought to the character of our life, it's easy sometimes to see very clearly those things. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 3, 5 that encourages us in words like this, Our sufficiency is of God. It is in the character of the Lord that He will allow us to use those abilities we have in a way that will magnify His cause. But that surely must begin with what we think about. Doesn't the Word of God challenge us to note this? The phrase, whatsoever things, happens seven times in the Bible. Only seven. And six of them are in one verse. Philippians 4, verse 8. Somewhat interestingly, the only other one is Romans 15, 4. Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Tonight, you see, our focus will be, though, on that one verse wherein those six other occurrences are found. What ought to be the matter upon which you and I think? What ought to consume at least a sizable amount of consideration relative to those matters of choice given to us? The first part of this particular lesson will be to at least begin to highlight how important that idea is. And we'll do so using some of those verses that are right there before you. First of all, isn't it fair to say that every word that you and I speak and every action in which we engage will, previous to that, have been involved in some concourse of thought. There will have been some basis of consideration that has ultimately allowed the manifestation of that particular word or phrase or topic or, yea, particular activity. And so it's no doubt that you and I can appreciate how strongly important it is to give thought to what is it I think about. What matters do you and I allow to rest upon our mind and upon our heart? The writer of Proverbs, Solomon, would in many ways remind us of some things such as this one. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. I can't think of any particular way in which the Word of God might have stated that more strongly. And that word to keep, that verb that's translated to keep, as you can see on the slide, it has to do, you see, with a matter of imprisonment. Imprison your heart so that those things that in fact are emanating out of it will be recognized as being wholesome and appropriate and dutiful. 
Keep thy heart with all diligence. May I suggest, this is an important point. That phrase, with all diligence, reminds us of how greatly important this is. In Proverbs 23, verse 7, somewhat later in the same book, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Now, you and I can perhaps begin to fool ourselves if we aren't careful. I can think about garbage and trash and other kinds of things so long as, at least at certain times, I appear to be different. We must be cautious about that. As you think in your heart, so are you. And thus, all of us are encouraged to be mindful of these little warnings and these matters of presentation. And tonight, it would be fair then to ask, what are some things that can be and should be and must be those critical and often matters of thinking? We might do well to come to this point in the lesson and say, we know quite easily there are many attributes of life in which we basically are forced to think about some things, and they may fall in the category of being neither good nor bad. I'm sure all of us at work are called upon to focus on some things that by themselves may not be particularly good nor bad, but they are a part of our job. And they're a part of certainly what we in dutifulness would desire to appreciate by way of fidelity. But surely tonight we're giving thought to, there are many other moments of the day. Every day, of course, in 24 hours. Every day in which you appreciate the number of minutes and seconds that will comprise the fullness of that day. There are certainly many moments of that day that you and I make a choice. What do I choose to consult? What do I choose to think about? What do I choose to allow to cross my mind and perhaps to dwell upon it? It is tonight that we might well ask about some of those things. As you close that slide with me, we're going to turn to Philippians 4.8, and the text again reads like this. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. You know, to think means, as you'll notice on that slide, is to follow those rules of logical consideration and to allow a matter of meditation and dwelling upon it. We understand what it means to think about something. And yet, as that verse closes, aren't we told that the person who does have virtue, and that word means moral excellence, having a, a constitution, if you will, directed to the things of godliness and holiness, that person with that degree of virtue will seek to think on these things. What things might that be? Well, let's one by one simply tally them and make a few comments as we go. The verse began early in verse number 8 of Philippians 4. Finally, brethren, as Paul reached near the conclusion of the Philippian letter, he encouraged of them, notice that word finally. He had already used that word more than once, and it seems as if as Paul was nearing the conclusion of the book, there were additional thoughts the Holy Spirit prompted him to address. One of them is, what do you think about? I hope each of us are somewhat in a position to reflect. Those Philippians lived a long time ago. Civilization was a bit different. The particulars of life were clearly quite different than yours and mine today in the southeastern United States in the year 2023. But nonetheless, there were some challenges for them, and 
Couldn't we all readily agree there are challenges for us? Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true. To speak about things that are true. I suppose we could begin by commenting there truly are a number of things in this life which are either absolutely false or they are mere speculation on the part of somebody. Speculation, falsehood, that which is not true. And Paul encouraged those of that day, think on what's true. I would submit to each of us that there's a lot of uncertainty in life that can bubble up from always thinking about what you don't know. Thinking about things that not only are fall in that category, but things which are known to not be true. We live in a world in which so many panic and are beside themselves with concern over things that aren't true. Over things that simply are not that way. And yet Paul encouraged those brethren then to reflect, to think, to meditate, you see, upon what's true. You'll notice on that slide Certainly things that are true begin with God, don't they? Fourteen times of the gospel according to John, it is identically asserted and affirmed that what God is and what God has done are true. I've called one of them to your attention. It's that rather beautiful text of John seven eighteen. There, isn't it true that the Word of God highlights to us that our Heavenly Father is true? And what he endorses is true. And what he stands for is true. The world sometimes can question elements of that. But that must not be allowed to dissuade or sidestep you and me. Because God, you see, is true. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Thus, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is true. And more than once in the Revelation, he is highlighted one more time with the feature of being true. To speak about truth in that way, isn't it true that God's Word falls in that category? Sanctify them through thy truth, thy Word is truth. John 17, verse number 17. And so may I offer the thought that certainly one of the things that would easily fall in the category of being that upon which you and I can think would be things surrounding the God of heaven, matters touching the Christ and His church, and the larger circumstances connected to the Word of God. Because you see, all of that is known to be true. At the bottom of that slide, I encourage you to think a whole host of things, only three of which I have invited you to know. Isn't it true the human family has put forward a number of ideas? And sometimes they can relate to absolutely broadly stated falsehood, be that evolution or otherwise. Sometimes, though, may I point out that you and I can be overcome with matters of circumstances, as Nehemiah was in Nehemiah 1. And furthermore, as circumstances surrounding the rather unfortunate choices of others. Paul's example is very notable, isn't it? As Paul again early in the Philippian letter addressed those brethren, he pointed out to them there are some who preached Christ, but their motives are not particularly noble. They preach Christ of envy. They preach Christ of contention. But Paul urged those brethren to give consideration to and the utmost defense of the truth connected to the matters of what Jesus is and has revealed. 
you and I thus are encouraged to think upon what's true. But the second one to that list is honest. We are directly told to think about that which is honest. I suppose it would do us well to first give some indication as to what that word suggests and then to make some applications to you and to me. First of all, the original Greek word identifies that which is honorable, that which is venerable and serious and dignified. It thus means that Paul encouraged, yea, delivered by way of inspiration, the order to those ancient brethren. You give earnestness and suggestion, and you give a degree of significance to thinking upon what is honorable. On that slide, I maybe have invited you to notice what's already so obvious. There are so many things in this life which are far from honorable. Things that are disgraceful, ugly, inappropriate, impure, and things which, quite frankly, are not deserving of our attention in the sense of dwelling upon it. And yet, you and I know quite well the devil will dangle those kinds of things in front of us and encourage us to invest precious moments of a day thinking about this garbage. Thinking about things which do not fall in a category of being honorable. The encouragement, of course, of a verse like this one is to ever recognize that as God identifies things as honorable, those, as much as the choice rests in us, ought to be that upon which we give our thought. We ought not allow our mind to plow through the gutter of life, dwelling upon, thinking about, and pursuing with consideration these issues which are so ugly and disgraceful and, quite frankly, harmful to the spiritual side of life. You'll notice on that slide I invited you to, to note the following. The corresponding Hebrew word that often appears in the Old Testament really means excellent. To think about what's excellent, to think about what has within it the characteristics not only of reasonable goodness, but of superior goodness. What is excellent? Proverbs 8, verse 6. And that sentiment is echoed in Titus 2, verse 2. To again think about what is honorable. Near the bottom of that slide, isn't it an amazing thing that the ancient writer named Jeremiah, encouraged those of a distant and far appreciable land from ours to wash your heart. Now you and I know quite frankly that we can't take the brain out of the head and scrub it with some soap. But clearly what he meant was this, that as you give thought to the reality of the ongoing considerations of what you think about and where those thoughts lead, Purify and cleanse your heart so that the resulting actions are of God and the thinking is of God and the language is of God and everything then about that life will be a defense and an approval of those things which are in fact of God. That statement of Jeremiah 4 again might lead us to a number of considerations of examples Many a marriage, no doubt, finds itself in a bit of challenge or difficulty due to one or the other thinking far too often about what is not quite so honorable. Sometimes that can lead to problems in other ways of life. Perhaps on your job side or mine, or maybe in other relationships with family members and otherwise. 
to far often dwell upon and meditate upon and think about that which is not so honorable. There'd be a lot less fornication and a lot less other sinful matters like that if first there was not an allowance of the mind to start meditating upon what is not honorable. What about number three? In addition to these two, Paul's list goes onward. And as the Holy Spirit directed it to us, he now says, whatsoever things are just. To this point, already, a mention of what's true, a mention of what's honest or honorable. And now, what about that which is just? Think on that. The word just carries the thought of being right to being just, to being righteous, as, of course, the Word of God would define it. It is for that reason I say it this. You and I know it again quite well. Uh, ungodliness and unholiness and directed sinfulness abound in this world. For it is so very much true that the Word of God highlights that so many make the choice to pursue not the things of God, but the things which are of the devil. And yet, you and I live in the midst of a world like that. It can be a matter of challenge then to think about what's righteous when so often the encouragements of those around us are think on what's not righteous, to think on what, quite frankly, does not fit the bill of being consistent with the Word of God. The encouragement then to justness brings me to that third statement on that slide. You and I know quite well that in the final analysis, what is righteous is determined and dictated and revealed as a result of the Word of God. It is not my opinion or speculation or otherwise it will come up with it. It must surround entirely and completely the Word of God. From an early age, then, how important is it that we rise again as we mature and grow to understand that in all matters, this is what dictates those sorts of things. It's not scholarly opinion. It's not what I think. After all, didn't God through Jeremiah say it like this? Oh, Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23. I add all that to say this. These issues, in terms of determining that which is just, are going to have a demand in light of you and me. A demand of investment. And therefore, each and every soul that is assembled in an occasion like this one it really speaks volumes about the direction of the passion, enthusiasm, and concourse of your life. We easily know that there are so many attributes and activities and pursuits of life which can, in fact, be pursued, and many times the world will clap and applaud those choices, be they related to entertainment, recreation, even work. And yet, to carve out that association and that determination and that commitment in life that I will be present at the assemblies because there's where God's people are meeting and there's where the Lord looks with favor upon the circumstances of the faithfulness that's found in places like that. And thus, to those who with dedication and commitment have made that choice, 
it certainly is a statement of desire on the part of them that they can come to appreciate God's definition of justness and make application accordingly with it. On that slide, you may notice then, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word of God has found itself in the hands of many men over the years who have not handled it rightly. They have handled it deceitfully in the words of 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2. They've handled it in a way that Paul had to correct and that faithful brethren of our day have had to attempt to correct. You and I find it so needful then to in fact be schooled and trained and educated and ever in those assemblies wherein we find the Word of God presented in its just beauty. Lest you and I close that slide then by noting, that leads to direct applications. When you and I arrive at Nehemiah chapter 13, what was it Nehemiah had to do? There was some falsehood directly associated with the, with the temple. And it had to be eliminated. And Nehemiah had the courage to do it. He did not allow that circumstance to continue. He didn't allow it to, in fact, dwell and drag on and on. He dealt with it as soon as he found out of its occurrence. Thus, you and I can often be motivated once we recognize these matters touching a subject of rightness. We will be motivated to respond as God would have us to do it. As far as the next element in that list, what about that which is pure? Paul said, whatsoever things are pure. What a lovely little word. As you can see at the top of that slide, the word pure identically has to do from its original word with that which is holy, innocent, chaste, that which is of moral consideration of recognized purity by being blameless. I think all of us have a rather good appreciation of what it means to be pure. After all, isn't it true that we expect a number of things in our life to have the attribute of purity? You expect your water supply to be pure. And we begin be, become a bit concerned when the water supply is recognized to be tainted in some way. We don't like contamination of our water. We expect our food supply, again, to be described as pure. You can add many other particulars to that life. Isn't it true we expect our medicine to be like that? Do you and I look with favor upon visiting a pharmacy only to find out later that what medicine they provided to us was not the pure thing the doctor prescribed. It was an amalgam of other things mixed in with it. Not only are we rather upset by such a thing, that might well lead to some serious health problems. We expect purity. As you journey forward on that slide, it is a reminder that again, things known to be impure can engulf us, can surround our life and find itself as a workable part of it. Paul admonished those Philippians so long ago to think about what's pure, to think about what has the recognized character of chasteness and holiness and moral uprightness. Not only is that found here, it's found in other places in the New Testament as well. I'm sure each of us could be reminded 
about the purity of which we read in Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You and I then can conclude from that, those not pure in heart, those who, by way of their choices, are not those recognized in that way, what likelihood is it they're going to stand in the presence of God by way of eternity? If the Lord said, Blessed are the pure in heart that they shall see God, doesn't it lead us to that next verse in 1 Timothy 5.22? Keep thyself pure. Now that command is a rather direct one. Three little words, keep thyself pure. In other words, in that way, you and I find that the God of heaven insists and encourages and makes demand of us that our life would be one recognized in the matter of purity. Quite often in the Old Testament especially, we notice that there are descriptions given about those that are pleasing before the eyes of God and those that will be blessed to stand before Him. In Psalm 15, purity is a highlighted requirement. In Psalm 24, again, purity is a demand of the God of heaven. If you and I thus choose to live in a way without that purity, you can easily tell it has significant eternal consequences. It is for those reasons, I say, how well then ought you and I to make usage of those moments as we mentioned earlier. Some of those moments of the day wherein we can reflect upon that which is in the Word of God. To reflect upon what we know is honest and honorable and true and just and pure. We know quite well the influence of the world is so different. I think we can each reflect upon the far country mentioned in Luke 15. The younger son desired that he might have his portion of the inheritance so that he could journey to a far country. And you and I know what was in the far country. We know the kind of activities that are there and the influences of life. It's at this point in the lesson, why don't we at least think about the opening psalm and use it as an overarching guide to some of the things we've discussed so far. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. There's two rather broad categories. There's the ungodly on the one hand and the righteous on the other. And by and large... What you and I choose to think about will dictate the particulars of which category we are in. Oh, how much we should choose wisely. As you close that particular one with me, this matter of purity, what about the next one in the list? The admonition to think on what's lovely. It's a bit interesting to notice the Greek word that appears in the original of that particular passage. The only other time in all the Bible when this word lovely, in that regard at least, appears is in Esther 5, verse 1. And it had to do then with the kind of 
raiment that Queen Esther wore. And I suspect it had to be a very ornate and very beautiful kind of garments. And yet in that connection, you and I are admonished that we think upon what's lovely. I've developed a few thoughts on that slide along with, along with you. And that word lovely means to be agreeable, to be pleasing, to be acceptable. I suppose in fairness to that, we notice that we're giving consideration to what's agreeable and what's pleasing unto God. Isn't it true that He dictates and He has determined that which is approved in His sight? And no man has the nerve to in fact make the honest claim that He determines what God will accept. Therefore, your life and mine should be governed by thinking upon those things He would say is acceptable and He would say is noteworthy and pleasing. Is my life pleasing unto God? That's a simple question. Let's tone it in for tonight. Is what I think about pleasing unto God? Would He give the thumbs up, a statement of approval in essence, to what I choose to allow, to cross, and to rest in my heart and mind? If the answer to that's not yes, we need to make some changes. We need to do something different and turn our consideration so that other matters occupy those moments of the day, not the ones that have been the case in the past. I ask a question there in that slide directed to Mark chapter 7, verses 20 and following. There Jesus Himself made a listing, a presentation about thoughts that were evil. Do you and I allow ourselves to think about things in that kind of category? Willfully and deliberately and by way of choice? If so, that certainly encourages. There's room for maturity in life. There's room for a greater movement into that which would be far more acceptable and things far more pleasing. Near the bottom of that slide, I've invited us to make some applications like these. Do you recall Moses? Moses was a man who certainly knew about his challenges. He was surrounded by a whole host of people who were often given to complaining. People who were given, you see, to distrusting in God. People who were motivated by unbelief. And remember, the children of Israel numbered into the millions. And quite often, Moses was challenged to hear their particular complaints. And as he listened... He would often encourage them to reflect upon again what would be described as lovely. Moses is said in Numbers 12 verse 3 to be the meekest man upon the earth. I believe we can be impressed by that description of him. I also added to that none other than our Savior himself. While the Lord tabernacled in the flesh, give some thought with me for just a moment to the kinds of things upon which Jesus thought. What did he think about? Quite often as there were those who would demand his attention, those who in fact brought before him various concerns, would you just quickly think about the way he reacted, the way he responded, the kinds of issues he brought before them? I suppose again there is much room for growth and maturity in me and in you. Sometimes we would respond with animosity with distrust or questioning character or even some degree of wrath. 
And yet our Lord in all those instances was blessed and primed by virtue of that upon which he had thought that he might respond with a kind of reaction that would often draw others to him and set before them the example of the God of heaven directly. Jesus is certainly a prime consideration even as he hanged on the cross. It is, I suppose, never going to fall from our heart to be impressed when he said, Father... Forgive them, for they know what they do. And they're the very ones that had nailed nails into his hands and his feet. And the very ones that had pressed a crown of thorns on his head, and he still could be desirous of their forgiveness. Desirous that they would come to have their sins forgiven and ultimately be able to go to heaven. What a statement of loveliness in the heart and mind of our Savior. As you close that slide with me and give some thought to the next one. Number six, Paul listed of good report. To think upon that which is of good report. That phrase literally means what's praiseworthy. That which is commendable and gracious. I find it a bit intriguing. This is the one and only place in all the Bible wherein that Greek word appears. This is it. Doesn't it highlight then this way the King James translators put it, of good report? It is certainly an encouragement to perhaps ask this kind of personal question. You and I know that Jesus had the capacity to read the hearts of other people. John 2, verses 23 and following tell us about that. And you and I know that we directly cannot do that. We don't know all the thoughts that are crossing the mind of others. What if you did know? What if I knew? What if you were able to read the thoughts of others? Would you like for somebody to read your thoughts? Would you, be, would you blush because you were ashamed at what you were thinking about if someone else knew? That's a good question, isn't it? And yet Paul asserts here for us to consider to think upon what has a good report. What truly falls in the category of being gracious? And commendable. Is it any wonder as you come near that slide with me, you notice that again, Jesus is such a grand example. He was faced with every temptation in pattern that you and I face, and yet never once did he sin. Never once. He never allowed his lusts to overwhelm his good judgment and to fall into a pattern of behavior that was sinful. That never happened. So often in the Word of God, we're encouraged to notice that He is our example, 1 Peter 2, verses 21 and following. Never was any guile found in His mouth. Never did He do, Hebrews 4, verses 13 and following, that which was inappropriate or sinful. It's a reminder to all of us the kind of directness in life that the God of heaven would wish us to pursue. Our life, you see, can be surrounded by those, these forces which can often motivate us in ways that are not good. It certainly can be a great difference when we have already prepared our mind and heart by having thought on things that are characterized by what we've learned tonight. On this next slide, we make a final reminder. Meditation matters. What you and I choose to think about what we choose to allow our mind to meditate upon, it really does 
make an eternal difference. I've selected a few verses that we could just quickly mention in passing. In Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. The psalmist highlighted the sweet blessing that attended the meditation upon the Word of God. We've already noticed tonight in Psalm 1, verses 3 and 4, how that there I'll meditate day and night in that which is the Word of God. To that we might add Psalm 119, verse 140. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. And the purity connected to that word is what we so joyously take into our life. Joshua himself was told by the God of heaven in Joshua 1, verses 7 and 8, Don't depart to the right or to the left from it, but you follow straightly along that which is the pathway the Word of God has revealed. It would be fair to close that slide then in Nehemiah 8, verse 8, with a blessing that attended what Nehemiah was able to do, and Ezra as well, as they brought about the great work of restoring the things that are of God. Today, if you and I would want to be the proper examples of goodness and righteousness and godliness, it's going to require that we meditate and think about the things we've learned tonight. We can't be those that think about always the things of the world and expect that the truth of God and the example and influence of God will be seen in us. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Tonight, as you and I give thought to our life, it may well be that you have given far too much time to thinking about things which, by your own choice, do not fit these categories. And as a result of that, no doubt you have become weaker spiritually than what you ought to be. Because after all, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17, will never be the giant of faith we should be without a rather thorough and complete working knowledge of the Word of God. And yet, if we invest so many of the moments of life thinking about these things that are not these categories tonight, we're bound to be weak. Peter addressed that very circumstance in 1 Peter 2, verse 1, and admonished those in that weak category that they would become stronger when they would, in fact, turn back to the Word of God and allow it to be the force which it ought to be. Tonight, if anyone in this assembly might be in a category that you have far too long allowed too much thought to be given to things not in this list. Won't you be motivated to change some things? To think about that which you ought to be? And I certainly realize that might make serious demands. You might need to turn the TV off and the radio and put the cell phone down. Maybe it's taking far too much of your time. And what you see there is just not as wholesome and it's not filling your life with the elements of faith which it ought to be. It might well be that a circle of friends you have, their influence and the things they choose to talk about are not as wholesome. Maybe you need to distance yourself somewhat from them, at least in that way. You see, our example is far too important. 
And we need to make sure to think about those kinds of things that the Word of God would set before us. Tonight, if anyone would need to respond in a public way to the gospel's call of invitation, we wish always to make that opportunity available. Tonight, if you as a wayward child of God would wish to come home, God simply demands the following. Would you believe in light of the things of what the Scriptures reveal? Make repentance of those sins and make confession of them. If you, though, would wish to become a Christian, believe in Jesus and repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized, we'd be more than honored to have assistance in any way that we might. Brother Don has chosen this song of encouragement. If we could be of help at the moment, we would set that opportunity before you while together we stand and while we sing.